Hello everyone, welcome to Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. Psychology Today, February of 2022. When pain signals PTSD. Recognizing the physical manifestations of PTSD could improve diagnosis. The most well-known symptoms of PTSD and those that make up its official diagnostic criteria tend to be psychological. Intrusive memories, disassociation, anxiety. New research, however, argues that often ignored physical symptoms are also of prime importance and should play a larger role in diagnosis and treatment. Writing in the Journal of Psychiatric Research, researchers assessed over 14,000 veterans measuring both PTSD symptoms and somatic symptoms such as headaches, joint pain, or digestive distress. Just 3% of the sample met criteria for probable PTSD. Yet of that group, nearly 60% also met criteria for somatoform disorder, experiencing persistent physical symptoms without clear medical cause. Less than 3% of the non-PTSD group reported significant somatic symptoms. While follow-up research is needed, the study strongly suggests that somatic symptoms are a core part of PTSD for most patients. And paying more attention to unexplainable physical complaints could help tackle persistent underdiagnosis. PTSD sufferers, especially veterans, may ignore or downplay psychological symptoms, yet many are willing to seek help for physical ailments, the authors write. Recognizing somatic symptoms as part of PTSD could help individuals secure a diagnosis sooner and with it much needed treatment. Grant H. Brenner, MD. When pain signals PTSD, recognizing the physical manifestations of PTSD could improve diagnosis. Now, in the business I'm in, diagnosis is everything. Having a good diagnosis equates then to proper treatment. Misdiagnosis runs the risk of possibly treating either only symptoms or if in that the wrong condition, applying even the wrong therapeutic interventions. What the author of this article seems to be capturing, however, is that post-traumatic stress has both physical as well as psychological symptoms. But to understand the physical and the psychological as they correlate or interrelate might be really critical to making not only a good diagnosis, but making certain that we are applying all of the best treatment approaches available. Post-traumatic stress disorder therein has primarily a diagnosis with criterion of intrusive memories, disassociation, and anxiety. Those are all psychological features, and it should be no surprise that those are then those symptoms that the American Psychiatric Association which is principally psychologically oriented or psychiatrically oriented in the sense of behavioral health, have identified with post-traumatic stress. There's not a dismissal of physical complaints, but there probably is not going to be the same emphasis upon physical complaints as would then be a medical doctor of a different specialty. 
Psychiatry is therein about behavioral health, psychological matters. Whereas someone else, another physician, practicing a different specialty, even if it should be a general practice, with individuals who are going to be coming into that situation mostly with the physical complaints, might therein miss the opportunity to appreciate not only the idea that post-traumatic stress disorder has physical dimensions to it, to it, but also that there could be a need for psychological care as well. Now with the physical side of it, it's pretty easy, at least to the extent that it's an obvious representation. And probably, I should say, or could say, most uniformly, individuals who have post-traumatic stress disorder, should they be then assessed from that behavioral health lens of psychiatry or psychology, are probably going to also have concurrent or co-occurring physical complaints. That's not an unusual thing. We understand that. We understand the interrelationship between the mind and the body, psychological and physical health, and would then see the need to treat both. Psychiatrists do treat both. Nonetheless, a medical doctor who has a specialty other than psychiatry or doesn't have much exposure to psychological sort of framework or orientation might misconstrue the physical complaints, especially if the person who's presenting to them and that would then be the lens through which they would, the training through which they would then make their assessment and diagnosis. And primary care, uh, certainly in a preventative sort of way, but even so, if you look at that as with secondary, just immediate to the presentation of the symptoms at that level of care, with the general practitioner in mind, they're probably going to approach it as more of a physical ailment or complaint and then run through a process of some elimination, if I could call it that, uh, where the individual hopefully will get better with whatever the intervention is. But should they not, they may eventually, in ruling out physical conditions or etiology, as was sourced then from a physical problem, they may eventually work their way to the psychiatric or the psychological component, but it will take some time. And that would also presume, again, that the patient would be cooperative. Now, I am sure that any patient that presents to either or any specialty, but either of these specialties, will be interested in getting better. They want some relief, particularly when it comes to physical pain the most imminent and immediate way that the body tells us something is not right, either physically and or psychologically. But when they present to a doctor's office, they're going to then present with the physical pain. If they should be suffering post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, which is an acronym for post-traumatic stress disorder, there is implicit in that then some belief already that the individual has an element of denial in operation. Why? Because as would then be in the article, the author notes disassociation. Disassociation is a form of defense. It's a defense mechanism. Denial is a defense mechanism. Now whether disassociation is an extension of denial, 
possibly a little stronger than denial, it nonetheless has that basic elemental factor of compartmentalization. Denial is to compartmentalize either a memory or some sort of experience, which is registered memory, and put it someplace. It includes not only memories, but present awareness. But the compartmentalization would be to put walls around it and sort of remove it, what from or where from, our conscious awareness. If we don't think about it, then we're probably not going to be as inclined to be worried by it. If we don't have to remember it, we're probably not going to be uh, upset by it. It's not going to represent a stress. At least that's the theory. But just because something isn't available or has been sort of removed from either conscious awareness, either the denial is not with too much will or intention, or with this association, there is always some degree of awareness on a conscious level, but it is something that otherwise we really can't use or doesn't work if we're too aware. The individual is not going to either acknowledge it, they're not going to report it, they're not going to tell the doctor about it. They're going to tell the doctor about the physical problems that correlate or that relate to that psychological circumstance. Now, trauma itself kind of implies a certain degree, extreme, of physical threat. Pain. The body registers that in pretty simple ways. Pleasure, pain, the hedonic system, things that hurt need to be attended to. Again, need to be attended to suggests conscious awareness. But there's a lot of pains that we have that may not reach the threshold <laughs> sufficient or maybe are competing with other sensation, pain, that may not allow it initially to reach that threshold of awareness. But when something harms you or appears to hold the potential threat to harm you in the way that it could result in your death, there may or may not be pain attached to it, but certainly the understanding at some level that there is pain. And with that then, how does the psychology, how does the person in psychological terms play itself out? Do they embrace it? Do they face it? Do they face those things that triggers such fear that they would prefer not to think about it? Do they face it in such a way that maybe it's even more than denial? Maybe it's disassociation? It's still there. There's still a registry at some psychological level, presumptively or presumably, presumptively at a subconscious level, but nonetheless... There has to be some conscious awareness and some choice to either attend or not attend to it. Especially as there are memories, where does one put those memories? Well, they wall them off. And they hide them away. They somehow block them from conscious awareness. Is it again all with choice? I don't know. You couldn't get better, obviously, if you didn't elevate it to a point of awareness and then offer their, that person to their be in or their in be a certain degree of choice. 
But once you make a choice to address it and deal with it, you still have to contend with it. And if it should be so threatening, so painful, at least hold the potential for such threat and pain, you're probably going to wrestle with that for a while. If you make, through, make it through that process of addressing it at all, it's not going to be the easiest. There's going to be a lot of occasions and times when not only do you not want to think about it, but you may need to not think about it so as to get some rest, to be able to get some sleep, to be able to take care of your primary drives. The threat's removed with post-traumatic stress. It's after the fact. The imminent threat is no longer there. But at the same time, though, it feels like it is. Why? Because the memories are just as fresh as they were the day that it happened. So when you present to a medical doctor with physical complaints, you're registering that at the most basic of all human levels, emotional processing. Yes, there's hurt. Is it a physical pain? Maybe, because, again, trauma can include some physical pain. Is it a psychological pain that needs some sort of expression, but because it can't be spoken of or talked about, or because of the way that that affects the physiology, maybe in some ways it creates, or at least somehow the dynamic manifests itself through some pain processing or process on an emotional level? Uh, likely, and that may be the only thing you can speak of if you are indeed in denial and if you are otherwise practicing some degree of disassoci disassociation. The hedonic system itself is sort of really basic. Those things that hurt really bad, we don't deal with. We try to get away, hopefully. If we're successful, we remove the immediate threat. With that, then we can sort it all out after the fact. But that fight or flight or survival instinct, though it is very adaptive, as there is very much so a very real threat, imminent threat, that doesn't work so well if the threat's been removed because just the fact that there still may be some registry, that it may have this inclination from that psychological sort of domain influence the physical, can even influence it such to change or alter biochemical reactions, processes in the body, so that they manifest themselves in pain. You may actually continue to process more at emotions, in emotions, and in emotions or an emotion at an emotional level, then you really do thinking about it, reasoning it, sorting it out, which is all really necessary to getting through it and over it and overcoming it and removing otherwise what now starts to look like a prejudice, a bias that can be very detrimental not only to adaptive function in a present sense because it's all driven by pain and avoidance, but if you live a life that's driven by pain and avoidance, you're going to miss out on a lot of opportunities to learn and to grow. You're going to get stuck. Wherever you're at, that may be sufficient enough to cause you to arrest your development. Psychologically, learning, you're not going to be as adaptive. We're going to take a moment to remind our listeners that they're listening to Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. So if that should happen, how do you then get to that point 
where you begin to say or cooperate if you're the patient with the doctor and say, well, you know, doctor, I need to tell you about this. And there was this awful thing that happened to me. And this pain seems to have gotten worse as a result of it. Or maybe it just began to appear after it. Now, again, the doctor may or may not ask the kind of questions in making their diagnosis that would uh, bring up such an event. Uh, but it is not unusual if the patient shows no reactivity or response when the question comes up. I don't know that they out and out lie, but they're lying to themselves. That's what denial is. They're not going to probably tell the doctor. So the doctor is going to say, okay, well, we'll go ahead and try to treat the symptom. Maybe we'll do some further tests to see if we can find out what's going on. I'm sure there's something there. And once we identify it, we'll be able to treat it. And hopefully at that point, I can tell you more about the course of the treatment or the course of if it's a disorder, or what that's going to look like, what's necessary to fix it physically. Well, once the tests are run, once the evaluation, the assessment, the diagnosing, or at least the ruling out as part of a diagnostic process has been finished or is as close to conclusion as humanly possible with the resources that are presently available, the doctor may look at the patient and say, I don't know where it's coming from. And with that then, hopefully, one stumbles upon or maybe his intention to say, well, I think you probably need to speak to someone else about this. Well, who might that someone else be, the patient could ask. And the doctor, the physician says, well, I'd like to refer you to Dr. So-and-so and so-and-so, who is a psychiatrist. And we're going to find out if there may be some psychological factors some stress-related factors that I'm not aware of, that you're not aware of, or you're not able to express in the way that we need to, have them expressed so we can understand the relationship to the presenting complaints or symptoms that you've brought to me that we've tried to treat with medicine in some sort of a primary care or secondary care sort of way, but we do not want this to become chronic and disabling. Now again, the patient is offered a choice. But what kind of decision can be made if only partial either information is available in the making of that decision or all factors can't be considered because of this thing called denial or if it's been so compartmentalized or that's become such a regular way of coping with the events that represent the trauma, stress associated with the trauma, the person really is not aware at a conscious level where all of those psychological sort of deductive, inductive reasoning sort of processes, maneuvers take place. Uh, they're going to think, this doctor thinks I'm crazy. I'm not crazy. I'm hurting. Now, some won't respond or react in such the extreme that they'll completely dismiss the recommendation. Most will be apprehensive. But if you can get them in to a psychiatrist and or a psychologist, psychologist not having the MD or the psychological counselor coming from maybe a different discipline but also practicing psychological counseling, being able to make that diagnosis as well as the psychologist, they hopefully then will be able to have that information such a conversation maybe as this. 
in a way that allows that to at least be elevated in the moment the decisions are being made about diagnosis and treatment, course of treatment, prognosis, progression even of where this is, post-traumatic stress presumes that it's gone on at least 30 days from onset, uh, event, trauma, acute stress being within that first 30 days. But once it hits that post-traumatic stress category, the likelihood of adjustment is affected by the fact that it is advanced, it's progressed, and as with all disease model, Again, primary care is better. Prevent it. Secondary care, immediate to its happening, is better than tertiary care, the last of those stages of care, which is far after it's happened and when it's kind of got into the range, uh, prognostically, of not only chronic, but progressively debilitating. But if the proper diagnosis is made, if the insight is presented, if the model is offered, Possibly the individual will be in a better place to acknowledge it and choose to cooperate to allow that memory to come to the surface. Now, it still can be overwhelming. With PTSD, there's always the risk of triggering flashbacks, going back and reliving, even as it were to be occurring in an immediate sense. Though it's something in the past, that memory can cause it to be brought in the present in the way that it was when it first happened. Physically emotionally, and even psychologically. But within the safety and the confines of a healthy counseling relationship where psychotherapy is done ethically and responsibly, where there is, again, protective measures in place, where there are resources in place, where education is available, where the person that you're speaking to is experienced and trained in such matters and can take one through those steps of actively processing even with evidence of post-traumatic stress, the prognosis is much better than having the individual walk away and say, well, it's really not psycho psychiatric or psychological. I'm not crazy. I really, it's all part of their denial or their disassociation. What? There's really nothing that really could have caused this in the way that you've explained it. It otherwise then creates a barrier to their getting better. It impedes then the progress that could be attained if they were able to at least sit down and talk about it with someone who's trained and knowledgeable in such things. Now, it may take a lot of support, it may even take an intervention, which not necessarily something which is not necessarily something we do with post-traumatic stress disorder, but you may have to have some family and some friends that really care about you, really, really, really encourage you, persuade you to go ahead and stick with it for a while. And if you happen to be one of those significant others, uh, there is then something to be said about that element of concern. Applying a bit of social dynamic, I don't know that I want to call it pressure, but making it such that the person has a more difficult time denying it. We, don't, we certainly don't want to be codependent, which is sort of then cooperating with the denial. But should they make their way in? 
and be able to go through that aspect, the behavioral health side of it, be able to see all these connecting points, be able to understand the diagnosis of PTSD, understand the treatment approaches, understand how the physical complaints fit into it, understand what's necessary to process it emotionally and psychologically. There's every good reason to believe they could overcome it. They could get better. But if not, then there's every reason to also be concerned it could get worse. There's all sorts of factors that play into repeating the trauma. Uh, you can't see it, you can't avoid it. If you can't avoid it, you may find yourself inadvertently or accidentally getting in the middle of it again. Or you may become so familiar with it that you become desensitized. You don't really understand the lethality and you kind of go there and do that somewhat ignorantly maybe somewhat innocently, but it's because you're not putting all the pieces together. The anxiety or the worry, the apprehension, because it has worked with those defense mechanisms of dis denial and disassociation so well as to bury it, it's off the radar. Consciously, until you're in the middle of it, till it's undeniably something that triggers in that flashback sort of way an undeniable recall and re-experience of the trauma, uh, the mechanism doesn't work unless you don't believe it's there. And if you don't believe it's there sufficient to put yourself in that situation, you could get hurt again. So, this idea that pain and PTSD can be correlated... And that pain actually may be not only a signal of post-traumatic stress disorder, but may be one of the first evidences of that. And depending on who's making that preliminary sort of assessment, diagnosis, it may be a red flag. Especially as then that, that going through that further testing to try to find or discover or identify the cause of the pain is not being very fruitful then a psychological, psychiatric, a psychological counseling consult not only is appropriate, but may actually augment what is already being done, coordinate with what is already being done to the maximum benefit of the patient. But you have to get their cooperation first. And insight and awareness is our ally and friend. And as much as, again, we do the podcast, I hope I'm friendly. I hope I'm also an ally. I hope I'm also a friend. And that those of you who are listening, maybe you know somebody like this. Maybe you don't. Maybe you are someone who's gone through something like this. But even if it were to be less than traumatizing and it would not warrant a diagnosis of PTSD, there's all sorts of adjustment reactions that work somewhat the same sort of way. But I do these podcasts to help you. Just that. Elevate your awareness. Gain insight. Try to backfill with some knowledge. <laughs> Use some evidence-based research to support that. So it's all credible. So it's valid. So that you can begin to think about it in these terms. And ultimately, so that you can get some help if you should need it. Again, it's our pleasure to do this from this side. I hope it's beneficial. I don't know if it would be pleasurable, but I hope it's beneficial on your side and you find it worthy. Certainly worthy enough, the presentation that is, worthy enough to catch our next podcast of Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. And in the meantime, again, I want to thank you for joining us today and invite you to come back again for our next edition.